everyone and welcome to Pop Screen. I nearly forgot the name of my own podcast there, just in case anyone was wondering what that was. Uh, but no, of course I remember that We The Geek Show's dedicated podcast that covers the good, the bad and the inexplicable of movies, either starring, about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for The Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. I've been joined this week by... Yeah, I'm Sarah Hayton. I write and direct films. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, we've chosen a bit of an auspicious day to review this, haven't we? Um, I'm going to say yes. Uh, because we are reviewing Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, and we are recording this on the day uh, when it was re- when it was leaked from the US Supreme Court uh, that they are planning to overturn Roe v. Wade. Is it, it's Roe v. Wade, isn't it? Yeah, I just yeah. heard something in the background when I was coming up here, and I was just like, oh my God, that must be Roe v. Wade, because they didn't give out the name, and uh, that is shocking. That's yeah. shocking. And I was originally going to do this episode and say that uh, on the Wednesday after this drops uh, for my birthday, I was planning to do a fundraiser for abortion charities helping women in Texas, which now looks painfully naive in thinking that this shit is going to remain in Texas. Uh, So I am instead doing a fundraiser on May the 18th for NARAL fundraising for abortion access all across America. And you can donate for that just by looking for me on Facebook. Excellent. But uh, the rather less grave uh, (laughs) disappointment I've had with this film is shoehorning it into pop screen because it has Sharon Van Etten in and finding that she completely disappears after five minutes. Yes, a bit disappointing. Um, But to be fair, I didn't know her before. I had to look her up this time. Um, she uh, plays the protagonist's mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene, there's a couple of scenes at the beginning to, to establish that family context. And uh, she is partnered by, um, we're never sure whether it's a father or stepfather. And then mm-hmm. there's a couple of younger children as well. So maybe it is a stepfather with that sort of age gap, but, you know, it's not explicit. Um, so yes, but she's very sympathetic and caring in those She's a good mum, isn't she? Yes. Yeah, she yeah. Is. She comes across very nicely. Because she's uh, introduced at a family meal following a talent contest, which uh, is, yeah, it's a very realistic portrayal of a middle school talent contest in that I just wanted to eat my own leg to get away from it. <laughs> Yeah, and that was just the first three sections before you even got to the, the main protagonist bit, which was just so oh, so uncomfortable to watch and just deathly silence from the audience. So, uh, I've got to admit, apart from one notable moment. I did not expect this film to start with the sort of 50s style dance number, and I did briefly think, have I clicked on the wrong link? Yeah, and, and there's three sections where there's, uh, you know, there's a, a, a barbershop quartet type thing and they've all got the cute varsity cardigans on with their initials on and it's all really cutesy and middle schooly. And then there's somebody miming to Elvis in the Mel- in the Melvis in the Elvis outfit. Um, and I don't know whether he's called Mel, but anyway. 
That would be a good tribute act, wouldn't it? Yeah, if, if Mel Smith, the late Mel Smith, had had an Elvis tribute, that could have been the name. Yeah. <laughs> wow, late stage. And then there's another, uh, like, sort of a dance troupe, and they're sort of bopping, and they've got the ponytails, and, again, it's really cutesy. And then you go from this kind of um, chocolate box uh, envisioning of the 50s straight clashes right up against um the uh the autumn character sydney flanagan um mm. doing her own composition we assume um and it's just a girl and a guitar and it's a painful way that she's being treated by uh, her boyfriend at the time it's it's really nails down a blackboard awful you feel you feel it viscerally in your stomach and to have that that way of disclosing something that may or may not be happening is, I mean, there are better ways of disclosing things, but she she isn't the most loquacious of people anyway. And it seems like maybe that is her only channel. And at one point, actually, you know, she, she meets a, a younger man on the bus, like a young teenager on the bus. And um it turns out he's in a band and um you wonder if at some point at the end of the film maybe she'll get up on stage there might be something you know if it was more Hollywood I'm I'm wondering if that might be how things would play out where her musical abilities are sort of shown to be um validated uh, yeah exactly yeah. and uh well received by a critical audience outside of her home state that are perhaps more sort of savvy and uh, understanding of her because there's no understanding where she comes from. Yeah, she's she's from Pennsylvania, which I think is a, a nice touch because Pennsylvania, when you think of restrictions to abortion access in the United States, it, it's not the most liberal state, but it's not the first place you would go to. Yeah, but it's not illegal. It's not <laughs> illegal to have an abortion in Pennsylvania. Um, but then you've also got people, I believe all the Mennonites are in uh, Pennsylvania, Uramish and... Oh, yeah, that's a, that's that type of fossil that curls round, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. yes. It was a great film with uh, Kate Winslet as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, on the one hand, you do have these sort of more kind of cut-off communities. And then on the other hand, abortion is legal. So, there's you know, there's two sort of... You, you have hope that they are perhaps more worldly, but then she finds out she's pregnant and she goes to the first in a series of uh, doctor figures or counsellors about that. And that first appointment, I mean, I could have done it in me, in me shed, basically, as well. <laughs> yes. You know, it's really disappointing. <laughs> it's not great, is it? Um, yeah. No, and, and there's, I think an early sign of how subtle and how clever the film is going to be is that when she is in that uh, the waiting room for that first appointment, she's seen looking at children's drawings on the wall. And you realise that, that because there are sort of parts of America where abortion is so unspeakable, any vaguely pregnancy or gynecology related center will be set up for motherhood it will be set up assuming that all of its customers will be either happy expectant mothers or hoping to be a mother 
Um, but she just looks at those paintings and th- there's, you know, she chokes the emotion back. It's not a, it's not a big demonstrative acting scene. It's just a little grace note that lets you know a bit about what the ethos of the world around her is and what sort of problem she's going to come up against. Yeah, definitely. And that is typical of her emotionally. She's very, very buttoned down. She very rarely expresses herself. Uh, at one point, she she protests against some stupid lad who was um, verbally abusive to her during her performance. And that might be the only time she does anything. That's the guy uh, where she chucks the drink in his face, isn't it? Yeah. And it's I liked that it's not quite clear who that guy is. It might be like presumably a friend of her boyfriend's, it might be her boyfriend himself. It's not and I like that it doesn't go into this yeah. It could be anybody really. It could yeah. be just some daft lad in her class who, you know, knows a bit about her. And it's I liked that because I think when you're making a film about any kind of difficult social issue the temptation is always to make it about the perfect victim you know there's there's a very bad melodramatic yeah there's a very bad melodramatic version of this film in some parallel universe where it's like firmly established that she was raped by an older man and she got pregnant and that's why you should support her having this abortion. And it's like, that—that that is a situation that happens. But the problem with that kind of storytelling is that it implies that women who don't have such a dreadful backstory don't deserve it. No, um, exactly that. It piles up those stakes early on. Mm. Um, but... And that's probably the fun and games segment if you if you're thinking of the Blake Snyder sort of structure or something like that, where you've got the the setup and mm-hmm. then you, you can see the permutations of that setup and you get montages and things in that section and, yes. and you know all the fun stuff, but in this film, no fun stuff. I love the idea of watching this with like the Blake Snyder checklist and thinking. Not seeing the fun and games yet, but it must be in here somewhere. Yeah, that's not going to happen, unfortunately. Maybe this... that's in the Blake Snyder cut. Yeah. Um, this film um, starts off really quite uh, downbeat, downtrodden. Um, and uh, But as it goes along, it gets so much worse. Yes, that, that that was that was a good. You've sold the keeper a dummy with that. Uh, it sounded like to the untrained ear you were about to say, oh, "It's not as bleak as you'd think." You know, you should watch it. It's quite no, it, it's much bleaker. Yeah, it's terrible what happens, and that was that is actually uh, to be serious for a second. That was part of why it took me a couple of years to watch it because this came out in the UK. In May 2020, it was in there with like Vivarium and things like that in that first wave of indies that switched to VOD very quickly as a, as a replacement strategy. And I thought, I mean, I'm reading the reviews, everyone says it's very good, I'm sure it is very good, but the pandemic's just started and I'm already depressed without the help, to be honest. <laughs> But I'm glad I went back to watch it because I think this is an excellent movie. Yeah, 
it is. I mean, I, I would have your tissues or, you know, for me, it wasn't crying. It was just so, oh, just anger at the horrible situation. Yeah. And, you know, even when she goes to New York to get a termination, um, she has to go through a series of counsellors that are all really nice. But there's mm. certain questions that apparently they have to ask her that are really intrusive. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she can't just say, oh, actually, I just want an abortion. Like you say, you, you know, you, you can't just make a make a, um, a film about a girl who wants an abortion and gets one. Yeah. And that's where the title comes from, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so that comes from the survey that she has to complete with the uh, second counsellor that she sees. The first counsellor is the financial counsellor, interestingly. Um, <laughs> Priorities. Yeah, and um, uh, the answers to all of her the questions that she's given is never, rarely, sometimes, always. And they include some very sensitive questions like, have you ever been uh, uh, abused by... Um, a partner or uh, anybody in your life yeah. um, and that's you know that's uh, I think the one time where we see her uh, filling up and yeah. yeah yeah and it gets to her and it's just really awful and the, the um, counsellor does make a follow-up appointment with her um, but it just feels so out of reach the whole film and this is uniquely American, I think, the vastness of that country mm. and her own relationship to the people around her, except her cousin, the length of distance between her and any facilities to help her is so huge. Yeah. I mean, and yet, and also the knowledge isn't there. Like anybody can Google, but she doesn't realise that that initial pregnancy test um, uh, can just be bought at Walgreens, uh, any chemist. Yeah. Um, and she's gone to this doctor and set up this like stressful appointment with this extremely pro-life uh, doctor saying, uh, babies are wonderful <laughs> and all that business. When you hold it in your arms, shut up, shut up. That video, that video that she sh she's shown, I had to look this up. Um, real guy. It's a real guy and it's a real It looked like a public information film. It looked yeah. like the one that follows from Zinc and its many uses yes. or uh, uh, Reefer Madness or whatever it might be this week. It is the Reefer Madness of abortion education. Yes, uh, I, I looked at it. It's, it's Greg Cunningham who was a staffer in the Reagan administration. Oh, uh, God, that's old. Bloody hell. I mean, it is, but you, when you start tracking this stuff back, you do realise that the poison came in with the Reagan years, that he was the one who thought he could play up to this shit. Yeah, uh, but they used to be called the Centre for Bioethical Reform at a time when anti-abortion stuff, I guess, was still underground enough that you would need to give it a bland name uh, and then <laughs> once that passed he changed he decided that was going a bit soft and he changed it to the genocide awareness project Bloody hell. Oh. oh my god oh, gap uh, so listeners if you if you find any information about gap online please ring them up and ask them questions about genes please please do that absolutely do that how many shades have you got of beige 
Uh, <laughs> fairly important. Yes, De- denim is the blue. Denim is the devil's color. Uh, it, it promotes lust. It was. They even wrote a song about it. Yeah, opposed by the vicar in Footloose, and as such, opposed. Yeah, rightly so. Like yes, <laughs> down with this sort of thing. Careful now. <laughs> It's absolutely hilarious how Graham Linnan has unironically become that lonely guy with a placard standing outside a movie. Oh my gosh, yeah. Let's not get into that. No, no, my we're going up on our that's, hands that's with abortion. That's scary territory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you, I thought what came across really well, I think, and I forgot to look this up and I meant to look it up, I'll look it up now, um, who's the colourist in this? Because that palette, Yes, and it normally bothers me a bit when you you have something <laughs> deliberately that, gritty. Yeah, when, when it's it's kind of grey to the extent where it stops looking like something I might see in reality. But I didn't get that with this. I thought it was just on the edge of what I, I would accept. It's it's heavy enough to be evocative, to be emotional, but it doesn't. You know, it's not like when you turn on the the TV now and there's another cop show that wants you to think it's a bit like a Scandinavian one and it takes place in a parallel universe where every single thing is navy blue. Literally everything. Indeed. They, I think they stay away from that quite well. It's yes. got um it's just the amount of browns and murky beiges and yeah. uh I don't know, it's some sort of 80s hangover, you know, free crockery from a garage type. Yes, yeah, it's that kind of plasticky beige that I always associate with, like, all of the shopping centres were like this when I was a kid, before Apple came in and put some extra lights in. (laughs) Indeed. And you think, you know, when she gets to America and... Well, sorry, when she gets to America, when she gets to New York, mm. um, and you would think that things sort of move on a little bit there, and they don't really, um, apart from when she's in the middle of Times Square, yeah, um, with all the you know bright lights and advertising hoardings and so on, which to her seems overwhelming. Mm. Um, that that's it. That's it's just that sort of muted palette, um, and the whole. I think the whole film has this lovely tone about it it's just it's not going to be in your face it's not going to be exaggerated for you know to tug on those heartstrings it's just presented quite starkly as is um and provokes exactly the correct you know exactly incorrect exactly the intended response yeah and there's a there's a couple of ingredients that I think are particularly impressive in in setting that tone, one of which we've touched on, one of which we haven't. Uh, The one we haven't is this movie's other music connection, which is the score by Julia Halter. Oh, now then, who's she? Julia Halter had, um, I I mean, she's been sort of quietly successful for a while, but she had a bit of a moment in 2015, I think it was, when she released the album Have You In My Wilderness?, Nope. No, no, nothing. Very good album, though. I, I find some of her work I find a bit difficult. She released uh, an album after Have You In My Wilderness, which seemed like 
one of those classic albums that you release when you want to get rid of a portion of your listenership. You know, it was about 70 minutes long and it, it didn't half feel like it was as well. Um, but Have You In My Wilderness is a great album. And the, the two singles from that, uh, Sea Calls Me Home and Everyday Boots, are absolutely fantastic, I think. But her score here is quite minimal, but also quite rich. It's it's very drone-based, but it's not like the little reedy drones that a lot of indie films have. It's a big, enveloping soundscape, I think. So, so Yeah, sorry, you are going to say the other one. Well, the other the one dialogue, is... The dialogue, by any chance. Uh, the dialogue is good, but the, the main thing that gets that emotional quality across is, of course, Sydney Flanagan, who is absolutely extraordinary. She is. She's a real find. And she is too, because she'd never acted before she did this. Oh, wow. And it's so understated. Yeah. There's nothing, that, there's none of the kind of show-offiness that you get when someone acts for the first time and they're not a natural. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have learn those tricks. an incredible story. Uh, I, I think... I don't know what the greatest story about discovering an actor would be. It's not something I've really thought about much before, but this has to be one of them. She met the film's writer and director, Eliza Hittman, when uh, when her boyfriend was staying in a house that was run by Juggalos. What now? Are you not familiar with the Juggalos? Do you know I'm not? I'm nearly familiar with them. They are uh, devoted followers of the rap rock band Insane Clown Posse. Who oh, have... yeah. Okay. I've heard of them. They, they have a, a sort of complex series of rituals involving face paint and fago soda. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're a real American subculture. And Hitman was producing a documentary short about juggalos. And that's where she met Flanagan in a juggalo house. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. And what was she, is she a follower of, is she a juggler? I haven't, I, I don't think I've seen an interview with her. I think Hitman seemed to do the majority of the press about this. I would, I would love for an interview to ask her if she's, she's a juggler. You could get her on Nathan Rabin's podcast and I don't think he would neglect to ask, are you a juggler? But yeah, I don't know. I think it would be great if that was true. I think uh, misunderstood American subcultures need recognition on films, and maybe one day we'll be talking about the first, the first Oscar winner to be a juggalo. You know, it could happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I've I've heard of them, and I've seen the sort of makeup and so on, but I don't think I've I can't remember any of their songs to mind. Yeah, I mean, I I. I Personally, I don't think you're missing much, but I think there is something there is something kind of interesting in the way that Insane Clown Posse were a joke for ages. But then the fact that they'd formed this subculture uh, made some people start to sort of grudgingly say, ah, oh, well, you've got to respect that. And then in an absolutely bizarre twist, 
uh, the FBI decided that juggalos were the domestic terror threat, which was so wow. which was so weird and so unjustifiable. It actually got quite a lot of people who normally wouldn't be seen dead saying anything nice about insane clown posse uh, going to bat for them because that was just bizarre it was so weird it was like yeah it was like the old moral panics about mods and rockers but yeah happening right now in the 21st century ah yawn (laughs) (laughs) but yeah the the cast is uniformly great and i think apart from sharon van etten there was no one at all in it that i was familiar with before no, uh, including her. I, d- I don't think I've, I've seen anybody else before either. And I think that can help. Um, yeah. Because, you know, they, they've got, not got any baggage. You've not got any previous. There's nothing, no form. Just you know, go, oh, well, he normally plays that kind of, or she normally plays that kind of character. Yeah. I think it's a story about a very small scale life, you know, that can e- easily be crushed in the machinery of bureaucracy. And I think as as much as I do like Chloe Grace Moretz, it would be really distracting to see someone of that stature in this role. It just wouldn't work. No, it wouldn't. Um, it, just the, the ordinariness of everybody mm. in the film there's no sort of movie star uh, looks um, and they're just ordinary people. Yeah, I want to talk about a few more of them uh, because we've only briefly mentioned uh, her cousin who's a major figure in this film. She's very important. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point she says that she's 20, which I don't believe. I feel like she is younger than her cousin. Yeah. Um, um, but she, she's such a sweet character. She's really supportive and she's the only person that gets on with her cousin and won't leave her, won't, you know, she'll just sort of stand by her um, yeah. to the end of, you know, the journey or whatever. And she herself has to undergo difficulty uh, and break the law yeah. um, to go on this journey, which she does for her cousin's sake. And it's, it's a lovely character. And it's not kind of, it's, it's a very close relationship. It's not uncomplicatedly close. Like at the start of the film, Autumn, uh, Sydney Flanagan's character, already knows she's pregnant. But when her cousin notices something, she just sort of brushes it off and says I've got cramps so this journey is one that they're taking together but it's also one that they're kind of forced to take together you know there's no one else out there for autumn yeah um it's like an enforced uh, quite speedy growing up process for both of them um <laughs> and it's it's sad that it has to play out in that way it's very much like a classic road trip buddy movie, like Midnight Run or something, except mm. not like that, really. Not really. Yeah, fewer laughs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I've not seen that actor before either, Talia Ryder. Mm, yeah, mostly stage credits. In regards to your question about her age, I noticed that she is not 20 even now. So, yeah, you were bang on then. Apparently she's done Matilda the musical before on Broadway and she sat, she looks appropriate for that. 
even now yeah <laughs> she could definitely um still uh pass as one of the uh bullied kids it's weird isn't it because like stage actors that there, there was a time when if a stage actor appeared in a film and they hadn't typically done films before you would notice them because they were the ones who you were thinking, oh, God, I wish they'd dial it down. But that's not the case anymore. Remember when we saw Widows and we found out that Cynthia Revo was like this Broadway star? Yeah, well, there's two different styles of acting. In the theatre, you've got to make it a lot bigger because you've got to hit the far seats. Um, But in film, especially close-ups, they pick up every move on your face. So you've really got to dial it back. And it's a really hard thing to do if you're naturally sort of la-la expressive and you have to just go, yes, I'm very moved by that. I think that's the genius of Talia Ryder's performance. There there are no jazz hands at all in it. It can't have been easy for her, but she has suppressed the stage kid's natural tendency. Mm, both, I think both the leads have very expressive eyes, different totally. kinds of eyes, but they express what's happening, definitely. I mean, uh, what's she called? Uh, Sydney Flanagan um, as uh, Autumn just has something in her eyes, which... <sighs> and you need that because it's a very close-up film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I hadn't seen any of Hitman's other work. I remember hearing a lot, a lot of good things about Beach Rats, and I'm definitely minded to check that out now. I, th- I think um, it's worthwhile checking out her films. That I'm, I've, this is the first uh, Hitman film I've seen, um, but it's encouraged me to go and see others, definitely, or find yeah. others online. Um, it's such a sparsely dialogued film as well. Yeah. Um, once the journey starts, especially, it's other people that seem to be doing the talking. Mm. And of the one person who really needs to talk, really needs to tell us all what's going on, and she's monosyllabic most of the time, if that. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bus journey to New York from Pennsylvania, which is not inconsiderable. Yeah, and um, it's her cousin that ends up talking to a guy on the bus. Well, let me put that correctly. It's the guy who pesters Talia. What's what's her, what's her um uh, uh character name? Skyler. Skyler. So he sort of pesters Skyler um by uh touching her on her arm, which gets its own close up, which to me says this is somebody intruding this is somebody touching somebody without permission even though it's yes. just a touch in the arm but that's like a broader um uh... it's the micro version isn't it it's like the the final version is what we've seen awesome go through back at home with the kids in the talent show audience but there's also you're right that close-up gives a, a sense that this is this is the micro version this is the first domino yeah and it he's not the I mean, the guy who is her boss at the supermarket, for instance, mm. or at least the person who they hand the money over to, it's they go into the back office, they're cashing up, and then they hand the money through a slot to somebody in a back room who you know takes care of the money. But that's not what happens because this is a film that's, you know, so many different types of abuse um, from men onto women. And you know how old these girls are. And he's just like perving over their hands when they get in there. And it's just, ugh, it just made me want to retch. 
Horrible. Yeah, that guy on the bus, though, he is such a fascinating character to me because I think it's the first time you've seen that kind of relationship, which is just, and this is a bleak phrase to use, but I don't know how I can like say it any better, but ordinary coercive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a different layer of, it's calculated coercion, isn't it? It's not um, like the misogynistic villain who you normally no. see in movies like this. It's just a guy just sly. yeah, who has just been raised in an environment where it's okay if a woman says no to just sort of push and push and push. And he's not yeah. at root a bad guy, but he does bad things, you know? Mm, I've no idea if he's a good guy or not, but that to me just makes him... Ugh. Yeah. All over bad, sneaky. If he's like, if he's like that in this situation, then I would extrapolate that to other areas of his life as well. So, yeah, it's probably true. I guess I, I suppose what I'm kind of comparing it to is something like Promising Young Woman, where I watched that film, and firstly, that was a mistake. Cause it's fucking terrible, but I, I didn't feel like it was challenging me as a male viewer and I think it should I think something Mm. like this should you should feel challenged when you see the world from the opposite perspective to the one you have but it's like every single male character in that film bar one is just a cartoon sleazeball who is just full of really caricatured tics and has no three-dimensional quality whatsoever. And I just thought, oh, yeah, I'm just laughing at these guys because, you know, they're, mm. they're just comic stereotypes rather than anything deeper. I found it tricky, that film, because it just it got such a lot of hype um and i was excited for it and i love what you call her in the main role oh mulligan's Sorry, great yeah i exempt I've her from any criticism no memory now yeah um and um it it really oh, it was such a disappointment um but yeah anyway it is it yeah and, and that film is weirdly invested in criticizing women for misogyny i think it's like mm-hmm. all of the men uh, like all of the women get really elaborate revenge and uh, enacted on them and all of the men have Cavie Mulligan in a sort of Halloween costume saying, now you don't do any more vapings you hear me mm. right and it's like yes let's uh, not do that not why I signed up for, if I'm honest. It's it's a totally different sort of tone, and yeah. um, it, it's. It, I guess that there was a, a. My guess is that Emerald Fennell had to jump through lots of Hollywood type hoops. I don't know. My she doesn't seem to Emerald... have the empathy, and she's yeah. just you know got it on the back of. Um, killing uh, what Eve. You call it? Killing Eve. Yeah. Um, I was going to have another guess, but I, yeah, my guess is that Emerald Fennell is not a very good writer, would be the polite way of saying <laughs> what my guess is. But yeah, um, and yet yeah, that was the one that got the Oscar. And I think it's it's very telling that when you're asking for a fundamentally conservative institution like the Academy to like look around them and look at the the sort of the rising tide of women's voices and women's activism that is in part 
happening because of the abuses they covered up. You know, the, mm. the Harvey Weinstein case was a huge part of why this ball started rolling down the hill. And yeah, and he'll like... be one of countless oh, yeah. dozens, if not hundreds of others. Yeah, that whole yeah, absolutely. So when that institution is trying to like look like it gets it, you know what I mean? They will reward something like Promising Young Woman, which is an unchallenging cartoon version. Or what's it? Or Moonlight. Well, Moonlight's good, so I don't want it. No, yeah, no, Moonlight is good, but didn't that get an Oscar as well? Oh, it did, yeah, but... Um, as in, like, oh, we have to give the Oscar to a film like this rather well, than yeah, to maybe, the latest Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I guess, but... I, like, you know, when Coca-Cola says, oh, well, um, we're now making our um, drink in recycled bottles, and it's just like, well, so is everybody else. Yeah. You know? And it's like loads of greenwashing. That's not the biggest step you could take, Coca-Cola. Completely, um, yeah. The biggest <laughs> step you could take would be to not fund the murder of Latin American labour activists, but that's another I mean, story. preferably, yes. Yeah. Yes, if you wouldn't mind. You, you could my, see my, your way. My point with the Oscars was more like if there was a better film than Moonlight in terms of black representation that year, I would be annoyed that Moonlight won, but there wasn't. There absolutely wasn't. Whereas with Promising Young Woman, Mm. there absolutely was a better film about feminism released that year. It was Mm. this, and you still gave it to Promising Young Woman because that's the sort of pre-chewed version. Yeah, I mean, did you see the uh, guy, one of the people speaking about the Oscars, um, one of the guys who uh, is on the judging panel for that and they mm. have to watch, you know, 300 to 400 films and obviously they can't watch all of them. Mm, um, yeah. And he said that he didn't want to watch this film uh, because uh, he something like he didn't support murder of babies yes. or fetuses or something like that. And um, that was, you know... It, that's somebody who is still on that committee. That is someone who is still on that committee because, and I swear to God this is true, they won a Best Documentary Feature Oscar in 1973 for a film about rodeos. And if, yes. If you were looking for an example of why the Oscars are ridiculously fucking out of touch, <laughs> this is a good place to start, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only has that been superseded in terms of documentaries, but come on, rodeos. I mean, does that speak to us now? I think when we were doing literary loitering, uh, <laughs> there was a, a book of Oh, that was a great show. It was. We should still do that at some point. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I remember finding a book of photography about America's first gay rodeo, which ah. m- make a movie about that. That's all Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah. Rodeos with a slant, some sort of an angle that applies to modern times, but you can't just do something about, oh, rodeos, they're great. I just. I, I mean, it... did he do anything since then? Has he, has he updated his skills? Has he released any other fine. I mean, technologically um, can't fault him he's done a lot of imax stuff you know in recent years I see. Like, yeah but you know 
I'm, I so mean, it's just that's it. He's just changed the size of the film that he uses in the camera. It's not really improved in quality, but the quantity of the film is is way better. Yeah. <laughs> and he's American, you say? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I loved the sort of smug sanctimoniousness of his letter, saying he would not watch a film about a, a murderer. Uh, he thinks abortion is genocide and all that yeah. shit. And it's just like. We have spent how long? Six, seven years since Trump and Brexit hearing these pissy little lectures about how we need to listen to and understand the opposing side. And the mm -hmm. only change that's happened over that time is that right-wingers have gone from everyone who doesn't like me is a commie to everyone who doesn't like me is part of Tom Hanks's secret satanic paedophile ring. <laughs> you know, so I, I feel like m maybe these sermons could have been better directed elsewhere, if I'm <laughs> honest. Talk to them about understanding shit. They can't even watch a 140-minute fucking movie about people <laughs> who don't agree with them. <laughs> So yeah, I'm, this has got ranty, hasn't it? I knew it would go ranty. Ah, uh, it does. It's the kind of film that does provoke a reaction, and yeah. uh, fair play to her to, for doing that, and uh, Liza Hitman for doing that. And you know, uh, she's obviously. I mean, I'd love to talk to her about the writing process. I mean, is this? When, when she, who did she talk to? To was it just for from her own mind? Because it seems like she's based it on, you know, a number of experiences rather than just thought to herself, hmm, what would I do if my best friend killed herself in college and I wanted to get revenge on people, just like they do in Hollywood? <laughs> um, she's. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's a lot. I mean, just she's just reined it in. She's made it a lot more. Uh, subtle and it, therein lies its strength and its power I yeah. absolutely can understand why the Oscar committee as is didn't or uh, award the Oscar but yeah um, a whole host of other award ceremonies have given them uh, big awards what have we got here Sundance yeah um, We've got Berlin International, Hollywood Critics Association. So, I mean, that's she did at least get nominated there. Boston, a smaller ceremony, New but York. delighted that the uh, that yeah, at the New York Film Critics Circle, Sydney Flanagan yeah. did get Best Actress and a few other Film Critics Circle yeah. awards as well. Quite rightly too. Is there a Pennsylvania Film Critics Circle award? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it. I mean, even without the politics around it, which I do no. think have, have been <laughs> decisive and that we know have affected how some Oscar voters voted, but it's just the Oscars always have trouble with things that are subtle. They seem to think that if the filmmaking yeah. goes like past a certain level of subtlety, it's like the film isn't being written or directed or acted at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I, we, I did have a chat with my partner about when I was watching this about, you know, the reasons why you would make this into a dramatic film rather than, say, a documentary mm. and taking it down to the individual level, make, 
making it more powerful um, and more subtle than a, a documentary, which to be fair, has probably been made um, a number of times. Whereas this, mm. um, it just shows you that in 2020, when it was made, the year it was made, um, it's still just incredibly hard for young people. And I wondered who the audience was, the intended audience was as, as well because you could see how it could be made and played in that doctor's office mm. as a warning against getting pregnant. Um, but uh, also as a woman, that's, you know, that's a good audience uh, demographic as women, how women are mistreated hugely still and nothing's done about it, how she just couldn't bring herself to tell anybody and get any support. Why didn't she tell her mom? Her mom seems very nice. I know, but that felt like a believably teenage decision. It's like you're seventeen. Yeah, she is yeah. seventeen. I don't know. I've don't no idea what the, I have no yeah, idea yeah. what the age of consent is in Pennsylvania. I know in a lot of states it's eighteen, so it's quite possible that she is underage. And at this age, this is the, like the biggest thing that's going to happen to you. Yeah. And so just can't like treat it like anything else in your life. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, spot on. I think that's the exact reason. Uh. And I think it's very good at observing those moments where the characters do the quote-unquote wrong thing and contextualising that and making that something where you you absolutely do think, oh, yeah, if I was in her shoes, I'd do the same thing. Of course I would. Mm. Yeah. It was nice to see an all-woman surgical team. There's that, yes, yeah. Pretty mm. heavily all-woman team behind the camera, too. I mean, the... Yeah, uh, I noticed that. That was good. Cinematographer, let me just look up... This. Uh, Helene Louvar, who is a French cinematographer, uh, who's mm. worked with Claire Denis, I think. That, Claire Denis, oh, really? Claire Denis like seems Claire to be Denis. like a, a cinematographer's academy, really. Anyone who has shot a film by Claire Denis is a great cinematographer. Oh, man, she's she did Happy as Lazaro. She's she done... She's done all of Alice Rohrwacher's films. Alice Rohrwacher is incredible. She is one of my favourite new directors in the world. I just want to live inside every single film that she makes. Yeah, this is a really oh, great She's CD. worked with Agnes Varda as well. Oh, yeah. And Wim Wenders. Uh, she yeah. did Ro Rocks by Sarah Gavron. That's a really great film. Wow. This is a good CV. Isn't it? And it's, yeah. it's jam-packed as well. Yeah. Like the all the things she's done since 1990. Wow. That's just 30 years and it's jam-packed with quality stuff. There's some, again, I think this is a bit of a watch list filler. Um, I'm probably going to watch uh, her 1999 film Nadia and the Hippos, just because <laughs> it's called Nadia and the Hippos, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on that list, um, have you, uh, God, where do you even start? Is there any recommendations that you would have? Oh, God, absolutely watch the three Alice Rohrwacher films. I mean, Corporal Celeste, maybe that's one you could go back to if you like the other two, but uh, The Wonders 
Ernst Happy as Lazaro are essential. They're just okay. brilliant. I've heard of Happy as Lazaro. I must have seen the trailer for it at some point. I've not seen the film, I don't think. I saw it uh, at the Tyneside Cinema and I had very little idea of what it was about. I think, I can't remember what else I'd seen. I'd gone to see something else and I wanted to make it a double bill, so I went to see that. And I just remember sitting there and just having that wonderful feeling of thinking, what's this? I don't get this. Oh, wait, is this this? Oh, my God, it's this. And just see, <laughs> seeing a film like really slowly unfold into some way you could never have predicted it would go. It was great. What have I seen by Claire Denis that we've chatted about? High Life. Oh, right. Which was the Claire Denis film? Robert Pattinson. That's it, yeah. That's it. I remember now. God, that was lost in the midst of time. <laughs> yeah, it was a good-looking film, that. Claire Denis' films always look great. I can't find the Denis film that she's done, though. I wonder if it was... Maybe it was, like, not as a cinematographer. Maybe it was as a, a assistant director or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. She did Lost Daughter as well. Lost Daughter, uh, uh, the film I know as. I'm definitely going to watch it one day. It's just finding the time. <laughs> cool. Anyway, we've got distracted again. <laughs> we've got distracted it's by easy done, isn't it? something like, pretty Ooh. great, I would say. Yes. Um, I, like, I like going down a Wikipedia hole sometimes. Completely. Me too. Yeah. Um mm. Oh, the chicken scene. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned the chicken, yeah. Mm. Can it be real? I don't doubt it. This is New York. Of course it can be real. It, it's the city of dreams, comma, chickens. <laughs> That's an onion headline, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was so bleak, that challenge the chicken game. Um, yes, yeah, it, horrible. It felt to me very much like a reference to... Have you ever seen Strosek by Werner Herzog? No, I've not seen much Werner Herzog, and I can't remember the ones that I've seen. So... <laughs> Let me just check. But Stro anyway, carry on. Have I, is it Wojciech? No, no. No? No, it's not Wojciech, no. Um, Strosek is the one about the uh, German street musician who goes, ironically, who goes to New York to, no, he doesn't go to New York, actually. He, he goes through New York, but he ends up in the Midwest somewhere to find his fortune, and it goes really horribly wrong. But there's a dancing okay. chicken in that, uh, <laughs> which... Gosh. It is also like just a really depressing sight and deliberately so. And the challenge, yeah. the chicken game, made me think this is definitely a Strosek reference. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's just, it's horrible, isn't it? It's like somebody trying to find, it's, you know, massively symbolic. But the whole idea of, you know, the business, who put the business case forward for that? What were yeah. they thinking? For it, sticking a chicken in a box and making it play tic-tac-toe or knots and grasses. I do find, like, it, it's the sort of thing you would get at a really sort of grubby, run-down seaside resort, and I find yeah. all of the arcade games there really depressing as well. Like, yeah. just looking at them and thinking this was expected to be fun. Yeah. 
not for the chicken. Not for anyone, I suspect, but yeah, <laughs> definitely not for the chicken. God, have uh, I really only seen Wings of Desire from Wim Wenders' back catalogue? But that's not Werner Herzog, that's Wim Wenders. Oh, I'm looking at Wim Wenders, sorry. Oh, don't. No wonder you're not seeing Strohsack. <laughs> sorry, I got my Werner's and my Wims mixed up. Mixed up. Uh, oh, <laughs> for people listening to this on audio server has a pen in her mouth but uh, <laughs> she is <laughs> sounding like a, a drunk old football pundit all of a sudden thank you that's totally intended <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm going for <laughs> that's my style <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, when, when I was looking at Vin Benders, I was thinking, that doesn't like the, look like the guy that we all do the impression of. No. <laughs> he doesn't look like he'd have that voice. No. Uh, no, I don't think I've... Oh, my God. I don't think I've seen any of his films. No. No? Have all of oh, my no, impersonations awful. of Werner Herzog been for nothing? <laughs> I must have seen one of his films. Filmography, there we go. Yeah. Oh, main article. That's why I'm only seeing her opera. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm not seeing Aguirre. Oh, I've seen Nosferatu the Vampire. Uh, and I have seen, oh, it is Wojciech that I've seen. Yes, yeah, with Klaus Kinski. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's it, those two, really. Well, you know how I feel about Herzog. <laughs> Always worth a dive. <laughs> anyway, already we've got distracted again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. Right, uh, and back to it. Yeah, um, I just, I, I wanted to sort of uh, finish off with a few more music connections. I, I say Sharon Van Essen disappears after five minutes, but that's not strictly true. Uh, she does the closing song, Staring at a Mountain, uh, mm -hmm. which is very nice and very, very characteristically Sharon Van Essen, I think. Yeah, I figured she'd probably submit a tune for the film as well. So does yeah. she still record and everything now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's got a new album out uh, this year, which has the fantastic title, We've Been Going About This All Wrong. <laughs> yeah, she's she's still recording. I think, if anything, she's going to step back from acting because I, she's done uh, some other... Uh, some other acting roles, most notably in the TV series, The OA, but she was, I read an interview with her recently about mm. her new album, and she said, I, I just feel like a total fraud when I'm acting. I don't know what I'm doing at all. Mm. Yeah. Uh, how old is she? I do not know. Let me check. She is 41. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, I... I used to do some acting myself and mm. when I got into my 40s I just got this feeling that I just didn't want to be kind of on display so much anymore yeah I, make, I don't know what I just like getting a bit shyer or something and um I think you you do feel like the last thing that I was in um was 
um, in 2008, I think, the last full thing that I was in. Um, and I just felt very, like I was putting on an act, even though I totally was, and that was absolutely what I was there to do. Uh, yeah, I just yeah. felt like a, a weird phony for doing it. So I just like, actually, this is a weird feeling. Now I don't want to do it anymore. I wonder if it's because, you know, once you hit that age, you should hopefully feel pretty secure in yourself and that, yeah, that like need a, for validation is... I'm not saying that every single actor does it out of neediness, although mm. that is true. We've all met actors. We know that's what they're like. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I yeah, <laughs> I suppose once you get to that age, you feel like you don't need to do anything that isn't like that isn't coming straight out of you that isn't essential to who you are what you need what you do yeah yeah i i think i was playing a character that i'd sort of i didn't really like her very much and uh she's all right she's a bit i don't know wasn't wasn't too keen on us so um yeah after that I just didn't feel like going back to it very much yeah I, I, you know wanted to focus more on writing I think I think that's the other thing too isn't it which I suppose might be part of what Sharon Van Etten's thinking about is that when you are writing whether it's a script or a song you are doing something that is absolutely personal in a way that acting can be you can approach it with that attitude but for a lot of people that isn't how they see it yeah you spend a lot of time not being yourself and mm. I think one of the reasons I gave up acting was because I felt like a jumble of people and I needed to just yeah. sort of cleanse from that really so <laughs> that impacted my decision as well that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah <laughs> But, Sarah, even though you don't act anymore, you, of course, podcast and you do lots of other things. So where, just remind us, where can people find your work? <laughs> um, I can, well, you can go on, um, uh, you can see Fifty Shades um, on Vimeo and on, I think, on YouTube now. Um, and I've got sort of bits and bobs on Grin Up North for... Um, the BBC and um, I'm on Twitter and on Facebook um, and Instagram. Is that everything? I think so. I think that's that's covered all of the uh, internet. Yeah, because <laughs> there's like only about five companies that own everything now, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, and as said, you can find me on Horrified and at The Geek Show. But until next week, when we'll be back with more pop screen, I've been Graham. And I've been Sarah. It's been lovely spending time with you again. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.